Today, I am joined by my dad, Louis Marshik. Dad, thank you for being here. Hey, Colton, it's a pleasure. You know, uh, I think what you're doing is fantastic, and uh, I appreciate you uh, even considering me to come on here, and maybe between the two of us, we can uh, bring up some good conversation points. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, over the last couple of months, I've been learning more and more about your your knowledge and passion for fire prevention education and accessibility of education for underserved communities and things like that. And uh, and I know that even though you recently retired from the Oklahoma City Fire Department, you're still involved in a number of ways that we'll get into uh, throughout this conversation. But before we do, I want to take a step back and look at you just as a person, as a firefighter. Uh, was there a moment that you knew you wanted your career to be in the fire department? You know, that's a great question because, uh, you know, a lot of uh, firefighters will give you the answer, and I believe it to be true that they grew up um, just wanting to be a firefighter. Ever since they were a kid, they had their costumes, and and uh, I didn't necessarily fall into that group. Uh, I've always thought firefighters were cool and, uh, you know, and I thought uh, they must do some really cool things, but I didn't, I didn't think a whole lot about it until I got older. Actually, when I was in college, I uh, was just finishing up uh, my degree at UW-La Crosse. And to be quite honest with you, Colton, I still wasn't, my heart still wasn't into going and teaching either physical education. I was looking at the YMCA and, and I was more interested in the Y because we did a lot in the community. But uh, a good friend of mine's father from Janesville, where uh, I grew up, Janesville, Wisconsin, was a firefighter and he was kind of your no-nonsense firefighter. And he just more or less pulled me aside and serious about getting a job or whatever. And he said, I think you should look into the fire service. Maybe something you're interested in. So it all began there a couple years or yeah, a year or two before we moved to Oklahoma. And I started studying, learning a little bit more about the fire service. I took some tests and uh, the more I learned, I went ahead and got my EMT certification while I was in Wisconsin. And uh, I learned the medical, the medical side of it at that point in time. And that's how it all kind of got going for me. And the more I learned, the more intrigued I was, the more I was interested. And it also was a job, you know, I just uh, started a family with your oldest uh, brother and, and we continued to grow as a family. And as a, uh, as a father, I also wanted to have a job where I could provide for my family. So it wasn't just about the heroism of being a firefighter and all the stuff you see on TV. There was also a, uh, um, the opportunity to take care of my family. But then as time went on, I just continued to enjoy the job more and more and everything about it. Uh, but that's how I got started. And the first place I ever took a test was actually in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I'll be honest with you, I was kind of arrogant. I just got out of college. I thought, oh, I'm, I'm going to walk in there and I'm going to show them what I'm made of. First of all, they had an auditorium at a school that, uh, I don't know, maybe took four or 500 people. And then I was told that they were going to fill it up two or three more times, you know, and I was just like, Oh my Lord. And they're only going to hire, like, I don't know what the number was, maybe 50 out of 2,500 applicants. So uh, that's when I started buckling down a little bit and getting a little more serious about the fire department. For a lot of people in their careers, those who have lifelong careers in the same field, especially they have a moment early on that 
hits them. That's they realize this is the career for me. Uh, did you have any similar moments where, when you were on the job, uh, early on or mid-career or otherwise, that struck you like I am in the right place? This is where my path in life is is meant to be. Yeah, well, yeah, I started getting a taste of it a little bit when I was doing my EMT training. Uh, it wasn't like one moment, um, but I was doing some clinicals. I remember at the ER and just seeing people, you know, in bad situations. But uh, even when I got on the job, I was like, hmm, I'm still curious because you don't really understand a job like anything, like whatever profession you end up with. You don't really know truly what it's like until you actually get out there. And uh, I still remember the first um, full arrest we made to this day. 28 years later, you know, it was an elderly lady and, and maybe 85, 90 years old, and we're doing CPR on her. And, uh, it challenged me after the fact, this was the first time. So, um, it was challenging when I left, cause I'm like, wow, do I really have what it takes to do this job? But at the same time, it's like, I'm going to keep moving forward because if, we can do something to try and improve somebody's uh, situation. And, you know, point blank, if we can bring them back to life, if we get them back to breathing and, and give them a chance at life, um, that really hit home with me. And then it just, there was call after call after call that was like this, whether it was a car wreck, whether it was full arrest, whether it was a house fire. And, I just hated to see people being displaced from homes. I didn't, I felt bad for people that are on their last uh, breath, you know, and, and a lot of times we couldn't save them, but we were able to change the outcome for some. And uh, ever since uh, being a young kid, I've always enjoyed, it feels good to help somebody. I enjoy helping people. And here was a chance where I could do it with a lot of great support uh, with me. And, uh, so I would have to say that was that first call kind of woke me up, shook me up, whatever you want to say. And but at that time, I'm like, I want to keep moving forward. I want to keep doing this. I, I, I want to help and see if we can make a difference. So I would say that was probably the first one that really because she didn't make it. You know, she she just basically died of old age. But uh, um and then that challenges you a little bit as a human person too. So I liked everything about that call. And, uh, so that was the poll for me. So uh, as far as I'm aware, not too long into your time as a firefighter was the Murrah bombing, uh, Timothy McVeigh, uh, the Ryder truck and so forth downtown. Uh, that was still early in your career. So, uh, what kind of challenge did that present to you? If any, uh, and for those who don't know, what kind of challenge did it present uh, to the department as a whole? Yeah, that was uh, the magnitude of it, I think, was the biggest thing. Um, you know, I was protected for most part. Uh, I talked to some good buddies of mine that, you know, uh, worked in there. And you hear some pretty gruesome details of working down in the pit down low where they were trying to uh, extricate people uh the majority of the time they already knew they were they were dead unfortunately 
so I was somewhat protected from that. Uh, I did have to remove a, uh, a gentleman I'll never forget because I always remember he had a black mustache and he had a wedding ring on. So whenever I went to the museum many years later, there was a few guys in that situation. I was always curious of who he was. But uh, just the magnitude of it, I was just finishing my second year. I almost had two years on the job. So I was still just a firefighter, a uh, low man on the totem pole on the rigs and all that. And uh, it challenged me uh physically yes but not so much physically at that point in my life because i was younger and in pretty good shape but emotionally and mentally you can't help but be challenged by that and you have to continue to persevere because what you have to do is you have to really sometimes put yourself to the side and realize we got to stay focused we've got to do everything in our power to try to find some some people that are still alive unfortunately I was not part of any group where they were still alive. Um, and we did, there was a young lady that was removed. Uh, we actually had a doctor in a confined space. They did have to remove one of her limbs to get her out. Uh, she was the last one that, uh, that I was aware of. But now since we knew that the chance of life was very slim, even though we held on to that hope for a couple of weeks, um, now we had to do everything we could to uh, protect those bodies, those residents and citizens who are in this building the best that we could. And it was just about respect and dignity. Um, you know, their families were struggling. We knew that. Uh, there was one incident where our assignment was just to go up to the ninth floor, which is the top floor. And we were told that's where ATV or excuse me, ATF was located. And one of our objectives was, if you see any personal effects, you know, let's grab them, keep them in a location where family members could get them back. But, uh, um, the media, the media in Oklahoma does a great job of informing. Uh, they they were informing 24-7. For me, it got to a point where I couldn't watch it anymore. I was getting tired of hearing about it. I needed a breather. And uh, and when I look back many years later now, I I believe I was just, I was very anxious. I had a high level of adrenaline. Uh, I didn't sleep very well. And because I'm still a young firefighter and I'm trying to do everything I possibly can, um, and I'll tell you one, because one little situation, it's not a big deal, but it kind of showed me that I was, I was struggling a little bit was with your brother, Joey. You know, we, uh, I took him on uh, one of my days off. We just went to McDonald's to grab uh, something to eat. And there was this lady in front of me and, you know, the happy meals and all that. And she got a happy meal and and we're, we're literally, I don't know, eight, 10 miles just north of the bomb site, And they're still doing the work down there. And, but I just needed to get away from the house and we were going to grab something to eat. And there was a lady in front of me and she literally was complaining about the toy that she got in her happy meal bag because her kid just needed one more toy to complete a set or something like that. And she was arguing with with the lady from McDonald's and I was standing behind her and I ended up walking out with Joey because it, it, it bugged me so much that I'm like, do you not understand what's going on just down the road right here in this city? 
you know, there's people hurting all over in this community and you're complaining about a toy. And, uh, so that's when I realized I was getting a little, uh, irritable and things of that nature. But I, I, I kind of tuned into, into that later on, but you know, it's easy to focus on the, the catastrophe of what happened and the hatred that Timothy and McVeigh had. But there was there was a couple words that came out of this called the Oklahoma standard. And I remember talking to Chief Mars just not too long ago. Uh, He was our fire chief during the bombing. A lot of people thought it was Chief John Hanson. John Hanson was the guy you saw on TV most of the time because he was our public information officer. And he did a fantastic job, you know, of uh, uh, trying to keep everybody uplifted, informing the media, things of that nature. But uh, um, I'm losing track here a little bit. Oh, the Oklahoma standard. I I think that word, those two words kind of came to light, even though this standard has been taking place in Oklahoma for many years before the bombing. But maybe this is what really uh, put a light on it and showed everybody what this really meant. Uh, I know you don't remember, but I think it was a couple years before that they had the earthquakes and uh, California, and they had major problems with looting, uh, people taking advantage of businesses, stuff like that, stealing. It was really kind of a sad situation. And uh, then this happens, a uh, major disaster in the heartland of, o- of Oklahoma, you know, or, or heartland of our country in Oklahoma City. And our call volume actually decreased. We had no looting. We didn't have people running around stealing, looking for opportunities to take advantage of people. We had people lining up to give blood. We had people just asking, what can we do? They had prayer sessions all over the city. This community of Oklahoma City and the state of Oklahoma came together like, uh, you know, this, uh, I heard stories about some of the guys from New York City. The first World Trade Center bombing, which was a small one, I believe it was down in her parking ramp, you know, a few years before ours took place. Uh, we heard that some of their firefighters would have to walk a number of blocks to get a cup of coffee and then pay, have to pay top dollar and get that cup of coffee, you know, after this uh, explosion. And some of the guys from New York came to Oklahoma City. We have what we call FEMA teams, USAR, Urban Search and Rescue teams. And these are teams that are national teams from throughout the country who have had um, – specialized training, especially in building collapses and things of that nature. So the federal government would send us a number of these teams. We had them from Florida, California, but New York came in and they realized right away that this was a different environment. When we would go into the immediate perimeter right around the building, we had an outer perimeter too, but when you'd go into the immediate perimeter, um, you'd walk up there and I always remember this little seizure trailer there. You could grab a, you know, cinnamon roll or something on the way in later on in the day, you could have a grab something on the way out, but to a larger magnitude, what we had on the South side of the Murrah building and on the North side, we call them mini Walmarts where people just donated new boots, clothes, whatever. And down on the south side, you know, they even had a set up in the parking ramp of what's the Cox Convention Center, uh, recently changed names. But in there, they had their mini Walmart. They had a buffet where food was donated. 
Uh, Dean had some music at one time. A group would play some music. Some chiropractors would come in. My point is, is every single firefighter came to Oklahoma, had a place to lay their head, plenty of food, anything they needed, no cost, you know. And I think that was kind of enlightening. Uh, and then the people of the community, you know, again, they didn't take advantage of the situation. They did the opposite. They prayed. They they they, they tried to volunteer any way they could, and it continues to this day with the museum down there, which is fantastic. Um, so I think it's important we look at the the good things that have have come out of that. Uh, you know, and I'll share real quick. I don't want to take too much time on one question, but. Uh, there was a lady, we, one of the first days I was there, we came out of the perimeter and, and we were grabbing something to eat or whatever. And, and, uh, went through the line to grab the food and, and where we were at, we just, they put some food on a plate and you grab a carton of milk or something like that. And, but there was a lady, I found out later after I talked to her, she came, she drove herself personally after the bomb, just drove down to, uh, Oklahoma city. And I think she was, uh, Red Cross volunteer, and that's how she was able to get in and serve. She just wanted to do something, and I was listening to and watching her throughout, and she's just walking around to all these first responders, can I get you anything, can I get you anything? And, you know, oh, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. But I could tell she wanted to do something, so I kind of hid my my carton of milk, you know, and I said, she came up to me, I said, ma'am, it's not a big deal, but, you know, if, I could use a carton of milk. I forgot to grab a carton of milk. I'll get that for you. I'll get that for you. You know, let me, let me get that for you. But it just showed the amazement of some of these people, you know, it's like anything that they could do to help. And uh, so many years later now, you know, it took me a long time to go back to that site for whatever reason. Now I find it comforting. And I know some, I've still have some brothers, uh, and sisters that won't go to that site they just can't but i think for most of them it's been a place of uh, healing and that's been really good so yeah it was a horrible disaster by one guy full of a huge amount of hatred uh, or really a couple but one who actually performed the act but to see everybody come together and to pitch in um you know it, it was just uh there was a lot of good that came of it too and would you say that good the the memorial that's that's been remodeled and the and the five Ks downtown and all of that is a lingering good even to this day? Absolutely. Uh, you know, I can't imagine how many people like myself who who will go there every once in a while, and it, it is it is a healing place. Uh, I think for me now, if you go there in the evening when it's getting kind of dark and they got the lights and the little reflective pool is so peaceful, um, <clears throat> you know, to go there, but absolutely. And it's educational too, you know, uh, schools from all over the state of Oklahoma go there to visit. They have uh, part of the building set up for schools to do some interactive uh, education, some STEM training, um, you know, it, so they want these kids to understand. I think it's very important that they see, because now these kids, they weren't around when this happened, you know, uh, but it's important that they understand, you know, what all went down, the evil, of course, but also uh, the good that really has overpowered the evil. And you still see that today. Uh, but yeah, I would recommend 
you know, I know you're in Colorado, but if anybody ever finds their, their way to Oklahoma City, the museum, I have to admit, I was very impressed with. There was things in the museum that I didn't even know that was going on when I was down there. Uh, so I was very pleased and happy. And we were getting hit from international all over the world. People were sending their love, their resources, and uh, so it, it affected the whole world. And before we, we pivot to you know learning more about you and what you're actively doing now, uh, I do want to uh, have a uh, follow up with you about uh, one particular um, child or, or brothers who are in the Murrah bombing. Because for, for people who don't realize, there was a, a child care center uh, a couple floors up. Uh, you'll know more specifics. And from uh, as a young kid, I remember hearing about this kid, Colton Wade Smith, and his brother. Um, and everyone listening knows my name's Colton, obviously. Um, can you uh, touch on what? Uh, why there is I an mean, influence there and, and and how that name found its way into into my name. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's ironic you mentioned that because every once in a while when I see you or talk to you, you're a reminder of that time period, but in a good way. Uh, and you're, you're a reflection of something positive that came, unfortunately, um, at a bad time but yeah colton and chase smith were brothers and they were both young and they kind of in a way reminded me of zach and joey you, your brothers you know uh, because you came a little bit later <clears throat> but uh we, we saw a lot of their mother um early on the, the first couple of years after the murrah building but you're right actually the first day that that i went in the building um the bombing happened on a Wednesday. It was that Sunday when I went in because we were working logistics and things like that. One of our duties was to go over again through the daycare center, even though it's already been searched two or three times by, by the time we got in there. Um, we were uh, double, triple checking. I mean, you had to. And uh, it was emotional, though, because I still remember seeing teddy bears and kids' toys and and you know, things that children played with just, uh, you know, a short time before that. And it's ironic you mentioned the daycare because there was actually the YMCA used to be Kinney Corner during the bombing. And we were always told if it would have been 15 minutes later, the explosion would have gone off. Those kids would have been playing outside. So we could have lost some more. So, but anyways, yeah. Um, when you came around, that name Colton, you know, both of the boys were thought of, but your mom and I both enjoyed the name Colton and it just had more meaning, uh, to both of us and definitely to me, uh, because it'll, it'll forever tie me into the Murrah building. Not that I'm going to forget that, but, uh, you know, I, I'm proud to be able to, and, and you're doing a great job of carrying his name too. You know, that's very important. So that it's another way for us not to forget, because those kids, uh, just FYI, for those who don't know, they did not live. Their lives stopped right there at an instant. And right now, they would probably be oh, 30 years old or pushing it. You know, so they could have had lives too, but they, they got cut short. So, uh, yeah, it it was the perfect name for you. Well, I think about it uh, pretty often, and I do try to do treks to the 
uh, the bombing memorial as they've changed it uh, through, you know, class trips uh, on my own or otherwise, because uh, there's immense value. And as you said, even for me, someone who wasn't directly involved, there's this peace, this calming effect that, uh, especially if you go out in, into the into the field by by the water where you have um, the moment of impact uh, represented by these chairs of all the different lives and the smaller chairs, of course, are the children. And it, it gives a, a point of reflection, which I've always valued and found really grounding, even though it had to come out of something so, so horrendous. Absolutely. Now, that's obviously Oklahoma City, you know, 25 or so years ago. But let's, uh, let's go into now. Let's look at where we are now and uh, how we want to move forward and how you're you're actively trying to help move things forward for Oklahoma City or uh, fire prevention at a larger scale. Uh, so uh, before we do that, uh, what has your role been in the Oklahoma City Fire Department? Were you uh, just on the rigs and then had a, uh, a transition to something like public education? Uh, and then how did that turn into something like risk reduction that you're trying to be involved in now? Yeah, um, actually, now that I look back, I'm grateful. I tried a few different uh, things, um, but for the first uh, 21, 22 years, I was on the rigs. I was at the fire station uh, working the 24-hour shifts, you know, and, and uh, during that time, I promoted uh, through driver rank, which is sergeant lieutenant. And then I also promoted as an officer where in Oklahoma City it's captain. And a couple years later, you automatically go to major after attending the, uh, another officer's academy. So, yeah, I promoted through those ranks. But I think it was about 2005 opportunity for me to work with the new recruits coming on. So... Um, one of them just got promoted to district chief and there's another one who's a battalion chief and it's nice to see these young guys, you know, get to where they're at right now. I'd like to think that maybe our training staff had a little bit to do with that. We tried to give it our best shot, but I did do 18 months as a training officer and then I went back out to the stations. Uh, and then about, uh, like I mentioned, 21, 22 years into my career, uh, I started looking at, you know, maybe trying to do something different. This is, you'll hear this as a firefighter, this is a young man's job, a young woman's job. And uh, it can beat you up a little bit. I was starting to have some issues with my back and, and my neck, nothing earth shaking, but I realized that as an officer, me personally, I felt like I needed to be able to still do everything that the guys in the back could uh, when it comes to calls and things of that nature. Even though I didn't have to do as much of the hard labor as the younger firefighters in the back did, I still had a, a pretty high standard for myself. Also, I wanted to free up a little more time, you know, to uh, at that time you're in high school and and moving to a Monday through five and Monday through Friday position would free up more opportunities and evenings and stuff to have flexibility to check in on what you were doing, things of that nature. So to be honest with you, I kind of took a leap of faith. I didn't really know. Public education and the fire service, to be absolutely honest with you, Colton, to many departments simply isn't a priority. The uh, What gets the, uh, the media attention, the camera work, the news highlights and all that are the big fires, the big car wrecks, you know, things of that nature. They want to see the firefighters bunked out and 
running into fires and things uh, like that. That's what really uh, seems to sell. Um, but when I was when I went over to public education, it ended up being really eye opening for me, um, because what it did is it opened up the whole city of Oklahoma City. Because in the fire service, for those who aren't familiar, you get assigned to a fire station, and we call that our first in district. And we know that first in district like the back of our hand. That's our puppy, you know. We, we know everything, the ins and outs, streets, everything about it. But after a while, you kind of get tunnel vision. You tend to forget there's this whole other city, you know. We still got the rest of Oklahoma City, and this is a big city. So when I went to public education, again, I've always enjoyed kind of teaching. I got to meet a lot of people in the Oklahoma City area. And then I started taking some classes. We're very fortunate that our leadership in Oklahoma City is supportive of firefighters getting additional education and learning more wherever they can find it. And so I had a chance to go to National Fire Academy in Emmitsburg, Maryland, uh, go to some really good conferences, and, and then also do a little bit at the state level. So all of a sudden, my... My fire service has gone from, you know, six guys or eight guys at a fire station in that first in district to the city of Oklahoma City, the state of Oklahoma. And now um, I'm the, actually the state representative for NFPA, uh, the National Fire Protection Association. So I work directly with the regional director um, that covers our state and we do things. So that's another national contact. So that was wonderful. And that's what kind of drove me or introduced me to this uh, community risk reduction. And, uh, and then the last year, I had a friend of mine who's the PIO, Chief Fulkerson, our, and he's still our PIO. He, uh, he hit me up and uh, they had an opening for the assistant PIO, public information officer position, and asked if I'd be interested. And in, uh, I was kind of hesitant at first, but then I thought, you know, this is another part of the fire department that I could learn some more, still utilize my education and my contacts there and bring them more to the forefront possibly. And I also learned more because I'd now be officed with the administrative staff, the command staff, and I got to learn more from them too. So yeah, that's, and that's where I'm at right now. I'm retired, but my passion right now continues to be on education and this this process called community risk reduction that a lot of people still don't know a whole lot about but the first word is the key word community and i just i really enjoy it when people in the community of all different backgrounds um, uh, cultures uh, where they come together and when we can get down and we can work together amazing things happen we got a lot of work to do in that area, but we're, we're taking some good steps. And uh, that also led me because during my time in public education, I was part of this coalition uh, called Safe Kids or Safe Kids Oklahoma. And now that's what I'll be doing in retirement starting the first September while I'll be in Oklahoma. I can still share my fire prevention knowledge, but I'll also be working in a couple other areas that Safe Kids Oklahoma need some help in. So that's kind of the, the rapid um, road to where I'm at right now. So let's uh, unpack a few of those more more recent, more relevant uh, parts of your journey that you're still involved in. So uh, 
the NFPA. Uh, I was listening to your your podcast with with their um, uh, NFPA uh, national podcast, and um, I find it really interesting that a lot of people don't even know what this is, myself included. So, uh, just for starters, what does the NFPA do, and what do you do as the Oklahoma rep? Yeah, the NFPA, again, it's the National Fire Protection Association. And they, they've been the leaders in the fire service for, I think it's like 125 years now. They've been around since day one in our country. <clears throat> and they are ones where we take a lot of their, they have experts in, the, in all these different fields of the fire service. And, uh, you know, there's so much information. If somebody really and truly wanted to look at what they offered, not that I'm trying to push you there, but if you go to nfpa.org, you can just click and just see all the information that they have, whether it's uh, different types of codes, uh, education. You know, they have like COVID in the last couple of years. They always try to try to stay a step ahead of the game. And they share resources. That's the biggest thing that I get out of it, especially from the education perspective, is they have resources for us to simplify things and resources for anybody. And in the fire service, we have we have paid fire departments. We have combination departments. Some are paid, some are volunteer. We have just volunteer departments. And you'll find out that some of the smaller departments, volunteer departments, simply don't have the resources as a large fire department has. And that is where NFPA comes in great. That, you know, here's information, here's some free stuff that all you have to do is print it and you can start educating your community. So they're one of the leaders in the fire service and have been for, for a very long time. And for some of you probably remember, especially as kids, they have in in October, Fire Prevention Week. Uh, NFPA are the ones who leads that. They work with State Farm Insurance and we send out, NFPA does and State Farm, these Fire Prevention Week kits to fire departments throughout the country. And every year they have a theme. And uh, <clears throat> in the kits, you know, it has some educational material, some things that you can do. And for a lot of communities across the United States, that week of October 8th, is fire prevention week and that is where they will go to their schools their communities and they will share okay this is our month or our week but they also some people do for the whole month of october where we focus on fire prevention so that's one of their big things and i was uh, very fortunate enough to attend one of their uh, conferences in person a couple years ago at san antonio before covid just a huge conference with a lot of great speakers a lot of educational opportunities and uh, Expo, just full of different uh, material things that can help the fire service. So my role is that they allow to have one representative, excuse me, called the NFPA Network Representative. And I'm that person for Oklahoma. So what I do is I work directly with Kelly Ransdell, the regional director, and I normally get the information first and then I'll shoot it out through our, we have a public education committee at the state level and then they'll shoot it out. And I'm working right now to where we can get that sent out, hopefully to every single department that's part of our Oklahoma State Firefighters Association. Uh, but uh, we're still waiting to see uh, if that's a possibility. We need to make sure it's done properly. 
it's all about distributing information because it's a great resource, but a lot of people don't know about it. Prior to becoming the NFPA network rep, I was the Vision 2020, uh, one of the two state reps. Uh, we now just have one, but I get, I did that for a few years, and that's where the CRR came from. But then I uh, stepped down, and I moved over to the NFPA network rep. I, Me personally, my personality is I'd rather focus on one of those two and do it as well as I can. And NFPA seems to be all uh, very comprehensive. They cover so many areas of the fire service. So I wanted to, I just like working with them. I like what they're doing. Now, what relationship does this position in the NFPA have with your, for example, hosting of something more local like the, uh, the fire safety summit? Yeah, it's critical. Actually, the uh, public education summit that we had in person for the first time last year, which we're really proud of. Again, we're trying to bring public education, community risk reduction to the forefront. We know that's very challenging. The fire service as a whole, you know, that's not always their top priority, but we're going to start. They're starting to pick up on it. It's slow moving, but they're starting to see the importance and that communities deserve it. But anyways, uh, NFPA, Kelly Ransdell was the one that taught us, our committee, how to put on a summit. So she was critical and she continues to be that way. She helps um, get the, the funding. She also helps us with getting some national vendors that come in. And then we, what we do is we tell her, because she's not from Oklahoma, she's from North Carolina. She says, you guys need to tell us tell NFPA what, what's going on in Oklahoma. What do you need to improve your state, to improve your communities? So that's where we come in and then we'll select the speakers and, and then we'll get the location and we'll work together with her to do the registration, get the vendors in because we really want a lot of local vendors. This is about improving the state of Oklahoma uh, from a fire prevention perspective uh, than it is worrying about what's going on nationally because every state's different. And that's really interesting because, uh, as you alluded to, the mainstream perception of a firefighter is a only putting out fighter uh, putting out fires, which people don't realize isn't the entire job. There's medical calls and things like that. But even more relevant to this conversation, it's all about fire suppression. You know, you get a call, you go out to the fire, you put water at the base of it. And then you you go back, you know, go back to the uh, to the rigs uh, at the station. But where does education land here? Because uh, I hear you say that education is vitally important. Uh, but where is the lapse in this education, and how do you think it should be improved moving forward? You know, I'm glad you bring that up, Colton. Uh, I really am because. You know, in Oklahoma City, and, and I've talked to other departments, I think we're all in about the same ballpark. Uh, I'm sidestepping education here just for a split second, because if nothing else, for anybody who listens to this, um, you're right. About 65 to 70% of our calls in Oklahoma City are medical, okay? We don't see, we still have fires, yes, but the number of fires that we have aren't even as large as they were 30 years ago or in, in numbers. Um, the reality is we're still called the fire department and we'll probably always be called the fire department because of tradition and things of that nature. And that's what people recognize us, us as, 
but really we want to educate our community and we did this through our citizens fire academy you know which was one of the programs that i led while i was in public education we are much more than just fire we are all hazard uh, response agency which means literally we will get called for anything we've been called for a mosquito bite we'll get called to yeah, still get your kitten out of a tree, uh, dogs unstuck under the shed, to medical calls, to any sort of natural disasters, you know, whether it's flooding, tornadoes, everything you can imagine. We got one station designated for hazmat where these guys are highly trained in hazmat. We now have an urban search and rescue team. Like we talked about the Murr building, that was one of the things that came out of the Murr building. We have paramedics at every single fire station. 28 years ago when I got on, that was not the case. So we continue, we even have a helicopter search and rescue team where we work with the United States Army, the Army National Guard. They provide the helicopter and the pilots, we provide the rescue workers. So we are so much more than just fighting fire and so much more than just suppression. So I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, because that's a point where some people just still in, and, and I get it, you know, we're the fire department. So some people grew up just thinking we did fire and I get that. But uh, anyways, the education perspective is huge because what it is uh, and let me back up for a second, prevention and education. It's not like this is something that's brand new to the fire service. Okay. I'm sure as a, for a lot of you that are older now and you're a little kid, you got a chance to go up to the fire station and meet the firefighters and see their rigs and they gave you a tour and showed you the equipment, maybe got to spray some water and stuff like that. That's education right there. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's not as set up and organized as reg reg regular education program, but it is education. Uh, we would also go out when we get invited to the schools, you know, when they'd have a fire alarm and we'd be there and we can give them pointers and things of that, na uh, that nature. So it's not really brand new, but we're in a world now that is changing uh, dramatically. We are more diverse than ever. We have technology, which is just blowing up the world, you know, good ways, bad ways, but, you know, you get messaging that way. And, it's just, it's not just important, but it's critical that we give the correct education and from our angle, correct fire prevention education and injury prevention. The reason I throw in injury prevention is again, we're not just fire. 65, 70% of our calls are medical. A large percentage of those are injuries. We need to include that also. Um, so we need to properly educate people and, you know, you mentioned as an NFP re NFPA representative for the state of Oklahoma, we have what we call an EMAC. It's an emergency messaging. Um, and what it is, is it's basically just a, a little booklet with definitions. Uh, it could be smoke alarms, you know, it could be sprinklers. And what it's all about is sharing the same messaging, the same wordage, here in Oklahoma that we're sharing in New York City or out in the state of Washington, we're trying to make it so that we're speaking the same language, even though every state has its own little lingo, you know, hey, y'all, how you doing? You know, guys up north say you guys, whatever, you know, and there's a, a lot of other ones where people can get confused. You know, if you say this word in the north, it's okay, but you say it down south, eh, that may not be so good. 
you know, depending on what the word is. So NFPA has made an effort to make sure we have the same proper terminology when it comes to education. And I'm proud of that. You know, it's something we don't utilize enough, but uh, I'm all for that. But for us to have safer communities, um, you know, just in generally happier communities, when they see us out there educating and teaching, first of all, they know that we truly care. We're not just there because we got to check off a box and we're, we're, we can't completely prevent, but if we can reduce the house fires and if we can get the people out of the house, the house burns, that's one thing, but we don't want the people still in the house burning. Uh, same thing with car wrecks. You know, it's as simple as, hey, put your seatbelt on, you know. Um, so, so education has always been important in our country. This is just more coming from the fire service angle. And how can we, in our area of expertise, help our citizens to reduce risk in their neighborhoods and do it in such a way that we can communicate with them, even if they speak a different language and things of that nature and we all work together, then we're going to have success. So how does this play out in more rural communities where they have presumably less resources, potentially more volunteer staffing? And uh, tell me if I'm wrong, but I would guess even some kind of uh, public uh, image problem with with education because it's always been traditionally suppression, as you said. Uh, Just how does that play out in communities that don't have the resources as uh, Oklahoma City might? You know, that's a great question, Colton. We talk about in our our state committee on a regular basis. I'm going to be absolutely honest with you. Um, I grew up in or grew up in a fire department where we're paid. I talked to a number of them and uh, they're amazing, first of all, because they're simply volunteering. These people are actually giving their time beyond their work week, you know, for their communities. So, it seems to me that if they're willing to do that, their heart's in the right direction to start off with. But as I mentioned earlier, yes, to provide resources that don't cost anything, like what we try to do through NFPA, where all you have to do is go in there and find those resources, print them out, take them to the schools, things of that nature. But I'm sure it's a challenge. I can't speak firsthand because I I haven't worked in one of these small communities, but I'm sure it's a challenge to be able to I'm sure it's not a priority education. You know, they've got all these other things to take care of. They got to do so much training, you know, and they want to be on the fire and the medical calls and things of that nature. But I think it's forward thinking on any department. And there's some out there that are volunteer or very small that, that see the importance of putting a component of education in there. um, I think is amazing for a couple of different reasons, you are uh, showing that you care, but when you start going door to door and you're bringing in smoke alarms and you're giving them basic education on uh, other possible hazards around their home, yeah, they know that you care, but you're also bringing your community together. Uh, One thing I do want to say is I've heard some of these smaller communities are pretty tight knit and I think their fire departments because they don't have as many resources, and I hope I'm not speaking, you know, out of the box here, but they are creative. They they find things, you know, a famous saying that I heard first day on the job, adapt and overcome. That's the fire service. You just have to adapt and overcome. No fire is identical. No car wreck is identical. 
you're going to have things that pop up. You adapt. Seems in these smaller communities that when they have a, uh, I don't know, maybe like a chili uh, dinner to raise money for the fire department and things of that nature, I, I get the impression that the communities in those the, those smaller communities are actually more responding to that and they have more of that community um, buy-in and uh, that tight-knit. Uh, I'm sure it's not the case for everybody, but I think that's cool. But you can continue to make it tight-knit by sharing, getting out in your community and seeing your face um, when it's not an emergency. We want to try to help you from preventing that emergency, not wait until it happens and we got to show up at your door. So uh, that's where education comes in, you know, in, in the community. You mentioned technology briefly uh, in there. What value is there of technology or more precisely data? Because data is one of these big buzzwords where what does it really mean? How powerful is it really? Um, but as someone who's been involved with um, upper levels of the chain of command and just public education, public information officer, uh, assistant, uh, PIO. Uh, in what ways is this data a useful, and b how is it being utilized right now? Yeah, excellent question. The reality of it, whether we like it or not, we are in a data-driven society, and from everyone I've talked to, and the leaders of communities and city leaders. They want to see something that says that you're actually doing this, that, that, and you're actually making a difference. You can talk until you're blue in the face, but I want to see numbers. And that, that's just the reality of it. So this is a multi-level question because dad in the fire service, you know, we've been very fortunate in Oklahoma City. We just changed our records management system, how we collect data. We've always, when we get back from a call, whether it's a medical fire, any type of call, we have an incident report that we fill out on the computer and then that goes into the records management system. The details I couldn't tell you about, but the data is in there. The problem we had for many years is our records management system. We had a hard time pulling the data so we could show people. We had to write lengthy queries and things of that nature. So I can tell you now in Oklahoma City that has since changed they're still going through the bumps of this, but it looks great. Now they're going to have the capabilities to be able to pull numbers a whole lot quicker and multiple people will be able to pull them. So now we've got hardcore evidence to show our leaders and to show our leaders of the fire department, things of that nature. So the fire service, remember we're firefighters, a lot of firefighters are like, ah, I don't want to fill out any of this. What's the point? The point is we need it to justify our jobs ultimately and why we're doing what we do. But when we talk about community risk reduction, which we may talk a little bit more here, the data part is a key piece. Based off the data, we can tell, and I can tell you, like say in Oklahoma City, we're pretty, we've got a large Hispanic population, gross, the fastest growing population. We have an Asian population with Vietnamese being the largest of the Asian population. And we can gather from this data if we if we look and we say okay we've had a number of house fires in this lower income area of the hispanic population and we see that and it's a it's an ongoing issue 
then that tells us we got to do something about it. It's our responsibility. We know it's there. We need to do something now through education and community risk reduction. We can go into that area. We can get advocates and partners like the Latino Community Development Agency. They can, we've got bilingual speakers. We can talk to them Then they can come with us. Now we're teaming up with somebody who can speak the language, first of all, and understands the culture. And if we're really smart, we'll slow down, we'll listen to them and we'll learn instead of trying to dictate to them. And then we have them. Um, you may have a university or a community college or something in that area, you pull them in. You get the leaders of, your, of the schools that are in that area. Because one thing I did learn when I was out on the rigs in the Hispanic population, never thought about it until later on in my career, that uh, the older adults, a lot of them didn't speak English. My best friend on a medical call when I went into a Hispanic uh, speaking home was the kids. I would go try to find a teenager or middle school, any age, and immediately I could tell they could speak English and they would communicate for us with that person. So that tells us a few things. We need to be teaching a lot of this stuff, this educational material at the elementary schools. Can you let us in your school? You know, now we're starting to find out they don't have smoke alarms in all their bedrooms. They may have one and it's 20 years old. That's no good anymore. We've got a program for smoke alarms. It doesn't cost them anything. We're going to go in there. Our firefighters are going to introduce themselves. They're going to install the smoke alarms. They're going to also look for other possible hazards. We're not there to say, oh, that's a code violation. We're there to say, how can we make your home safer? Now you look a year later, hmm, we're not having those fires in those neighborhoods. Or if we are, everybody's getting out immediately, you know, because they have a device that is warning them to get out. So that's just one example, you know, it's about getting everyone together. Uh, I may have lost track a little bit of your question. Did I answer it? Yes, yes. And it actually brings me to a related question. Um, with the change in the fire department, uh, presumably over, con uh, over time becoming more diverse, um, having a, a higher percent of women on the force and things like that, uh, what role does that play in helping with uh, as you said, cultural or, or language barriers whenever you're trying to do this community risk reduction and make it as effective as possible? It's huge. You know, and I'm sure you got some firefighters saying, I don't want no woman on the job or whatever. That's not thinking very wisely. Um, uh, or you just want certain people. That That's a huge mistake. It's great that we have this diversity because uh, – you know, I spent a number of years at my fire station working with a, with a female firefighter. And uh, I can tell you firsthand, there's calls that we make. You know, you think about uh, OBGYN calls, uh, lady thinking about almost about ready to have a baby or something. You got a bunch of big old firefighter guys walk in, but when they see the woman, they lock eyes with her. Okay, they automatically have some sort of connection. And that's just one example. So having a female in there makes a huge difference on a lot of calls. Uh, plus, you know, they're, they're as good as any other firefighter that I've seen on the job, you know. And, and uh, But also with the Hispanic community I was talking about earlier, we have uh, a gentleman named Miguel Baez. He uh, came from Mexico. He's now a USA, uh, U.S. citizen. 
worked his way through the whole process and he's been a firefighter for us. And he's now, he actually took my spot in education and he has a great tie-in with the Hispanic community as well as some Hispanic uh, leaders um, in the state of Oklahoma. So he's connecting our fire department with the Hispanic community probably like never before. And with that comes trust. He's also going around educating these young men and women who may have an interest in the fire service that, hey, it's okay, man, I'm Hispanic, I'm, I'm on the job, you can come too, and they start looking up to him. So the tide is changing. Uh, but yeah, we're becoming more diverse in Oklahoma City. We still have work to do, but uh, it's priceless, you know, to have individuals in in this facility. You know, you, you go to a, a large community, it's African-American, and uh, they're going to feel more comfortable if they have a firefighter who's African-American as part of that crew coming in. I mean, I just think that'd be common sense. Um, so, uh, yeah, again, whether we like it, kind of like that, or whether we like it or not, um, I personally think it's a great thing. And it appears the fire service is really doing a good job to be proactive on this. Um, I just think it's win-win for our community if we have more diversity who can reach out to everybody. Now you mentioned uh, the Safe Kids program you're you're working on or, or got involved in very early. Uh, explain what that is and and how is that related to community risk reduction, if at all? Yeah, uh, originally uh, I was asked to join the Safe Kids Coalition, the the Metro Coalition in Oklahoma City. <clears throat> and I'll be honest with you, I didn't know much about Safe Kids at all before then. Uh, but I attended their first couple meetings, and what it was is it's people in the community that have different areas of expertise, some representatives from insurance, uh, we have PD and gun control, you know, gun safety, uh, you know, it's just universities being represented, things of that nature. But it literally is a coalition of folks that come together. And the bottom line is they care about people and they want to try to reduce the number of injuries that are happening across our state. So as firefighters, we go in our area of expertise is the fire service, fire prevention, and I felt comfortable in that role. Um, so that's how I first met this uh, group of people. Now, the Safe Kids Coalition, we have three or four coalitions throughout the state of Oklahoma that are underneath the direction of Safe Kids Oklahoma. And then Safe Kids Oklahoma is really under the direction of Safe Kids Worldwide. And uh, Safe Kids Worldwide is one of the leaders, if not the leader, in injury prevention education for children from um, birth to 19 years of age. Their whole goal is to try to uh, reduce, it'd be great to eliminate, but reduce the number of injuries and fatalities that happen to our children that very easily could have been prevented through just some simple education. And, uh, and that's, so after about four or five years working with them on the coalition, um, when I was getting ready to retire, the uh, director for Safe Kids Oklahoma approached me and asked if I'd be interested in help teach a couple of topics through Safe Kids Oklahoma. And I said, absolutely. 
because they're a well-respected organization. They're officed at the Children's Center in Bethany, which is one of the top-notch rehabilitation hospitals for children in this part of the country. So um, I'm, I'm, I feel blessed to be able to have that opportunity. So what does the future of CRR, community risk reduction, uh, really look like uh, in Oklahoma or otherwise? Is, is it programs like this Safe Kids program and, and coalitions that really are leading the way, or are there other avenues that are yet to be explored? Well, the easy answer is sky's the limit, but let me just give you a brief history, uh, just in case there are people listening and wondering where in the world does community risk reduction, reduction uh, process even come from? A lot of, we just refer to it as CRR, but uh, if anybody really wanted to understand it in its depth, because there's a lot more to it, um, you could always go to a website, it's called Strategic fire.org and that is the vision 2020 website keep in mind this community risk reduction was initiated through the fire service throughout uh, well it originally i believe began over in the united kingdom where they had great success and then we brought it over here and it all started i believe around 2009 where some of the the top leaders in the fire service, not just suppression, you know, investigation, prevention, science, education, engineering, anything you can think of, you know, they got the top people together and they said, we still have a problem in the United States. We're still losing too many people to fires. You know, what is the problem here? Even though we have better technology and things of that nature, we need to address this again. And that's how they are addressing it is through this, uh, pretty comprehensive program called Community Risk Reduction. So it all began with Vision 2020, and that can, you can get really in-depth if you want to go to that website. The other group with that is NFPA, nfpa.org. Even though they didn't start it, they are definitely on board with it, and they want to educate uh, moving forward. But the whole, the basic concept between community risk reduction is just read those three words backwards reducing the risk in your community. That's basically what it all is. But you need to have, it's a process and you need to have strategies in place and you need to have a plan to actually approach it systematically uh, based off data. That's the most important key thing when it comes to what we call the community risk assessment. You have to do a thorough assessment of your community before you can put your plan into action you have to really understand what your community is made of. Where are, the, where are the problems we have, things of that nature? What kind of cultures do we have in our community? It has probably changed in 10 years, you know? What's the poverty level? Where are your most fires at? You know, what's the education level? All these things all come into play. But what I like the most about it is if it's done right, you will have partners and advocates from within the whole community, even though it's initiated by the fire service, it's a program that is for the community. We're glad to be able to be the ones initiating it, but you need to have buy-in and partners. And so when you have moving pieces like that, that's the biggest challenge. And that goes back to leadership, communication, you know, somebody to continue to move it forward with the group, and here in Oklahoma, we're actually looking at 
trying to do a community risk reduction program for the entire state. Uh, our Vision 2020 rep out of Tulsa, Cody, he is working with Vision 2020 right now to see how we can do that to even try to approach the whole state of Oklahoma to see where we can make improvements. Uh, you know, we have a large Native Indian population here. There's something that we need to talk about, you know, and they need to be at the table. Um, we need to understand their cultures. Me personally, I think there needs to be a time of learning. You don't, I don't think you can just dive in and say, well, we're going to do this, this, and this. I think we need to mellow out a little bit, take a breather, and let's hear what the Asian community is really saying. Let's hear what the Native American uh, community is really having troubles with and so on and so forth. So take that learning part and then let's move forward from there. How important is thoughtful leadership in this path forward? Because it strikes me as seemingly a, a substrate to this whole, this whole progression that as much as there may be good ideas uh, coming out of different pockets of the state, different pockets of the country, if there is no um, leadership who's interested in this risk reduction, who's interested in um, doing more than simply fire suppression at the forefront. Uh, so really, what is that? Uh, how important is it for this leadership to be thoughtful and be uh, planning ahead for the future for this to really take hold? I think it's critical, Colton, and you know as well as anybody, Lord, you know, leadership is, is the key. And I'm not saying it's going to be easy, but you need not just one. We don't need a dictator. We need a number of people who are willing to, and, and again, you want leaders that are in there for the right reason. I really and truly care about improving the safety of all residents of Oklahoma. I'm not doing it so I can put it on my resume. I'm not doing it so I can say, look at what our fire department does and then really kind of fizzle out and you're just getting a name up there. That drives me bonkers. We need leaders that will see it through and if they have to transition out for whatever reason, retirement or health issues, whatever, that they have the right people come in behind. Um, but I think the leaders for this to really happen, they have to be willing to listen. Um, they have to be willing to understand because now you're crossing into the lines, like we've mentioned a couple of times, into other people's cultures. I had the chance to work with the Vietnamese com uh, community. Great experience. Uh, and at one of their events, it was really neat. They, they were showing respect towards their country, um, but then they followed up. I think they had like their, one of their ceremonies, they would have a national anthem for their country. They're remembering their culture. They're remembering their family, you know, the things they knew and things that they love. Then they followed it up with the national anthem of the United States. We are so grateful to be in this country. You know, we're grateful to have these opportunities. So there, we still need to honor and respect their culture, but at the same time, let's see if we can bring all of our cultures together, which I think is feasible, but you got to have those people, your, uh, we call them champions. You got to have the champions from each of those communities to uh, jump in there, to lead the way and work together with those other champions, and then good things will happen. So 
Yeah, that's a slippery slope. You can see that at any level. We see in our country right now, you know, leadership is uh, that word, I think, is I'm not sure. There's a lot of different forms of leadership, but, uh, you know, <laughs> without getting political or anything, we just we need good leaders who have good morals and good values. I think more than anything has a decent ethical foundation and, and then can accept and listen to other people's views. Aside from leadership, what other challenges do you foresee um, getting in your way or even just pushing back along this journey towards a more preventative fire department? Yeah. uh, Well, the reality of it is, and I'm proud to say I haven't seen this in Oklahoma City, but I've talked to many other people. Um, When you have a budget cut, in your department for whatever reason, times get difficult, uh, are you gonna can that community risk reduction person? Is that the first place to go? You know, are you gonna truly see it through? So I think sometimes we're our worst enemy. Uh, You know, you just have to be committed to the process, committed to the program. Also from the fire department perspective, and it may be the same for some other people, uh, change is difficult especially when you have some hard traditions. And uh, I think it's very important that we respect our past, but you have to be flexible. You have to be willing to change and move forward or you're going to get caught behind and it's going to be really hard to get caught up again. So this world continues to move. I think your profession has to do that, but I think you can do it in such a respectful uh, professional way to still be able to highlight and respect the things that have happened in the past, you know, to, uh, to move forward. So yeah, it has to be a priority and it's, like I said, it's still fairly new. Some people are just, whatever, they don't want to hear about it. It's just a public education thing. No, it's not a public education thing. This is all divisions of the fire service and all your partners in the community that have a willingness to improve your community. What is one thing that you think people should know about the fire service um, or even just about fire prevention generally, uh, whether it's smoke detectors or or what they can do in their own homes? What's one thing people should know uh, before we end our conversation today? Uh, Well, we talked about one, the fire service as a whole, we do more than just fire. And we talked about that. We're all hazard. So that's a a big misconception there. Um, When I talk about CRR, community risk reduction, because I've seen this firsthand, some people when it first came out, they, they were pointing to public education. You guys take that over and you lead that. It's not public education. Public education is one part of it. Then you have suppression is one part. And you have your support, your special ops, and then you have all your community partners. So it's much more comprehensive. So one of the worst mistakes, and I think some fire departments have done this, is when they see it, they assign it to public education. And then what happens is the firefighters in your own community and your community members say, oh, that's public education. Anytime anybody says CR, ah, call public education. No, that, that's wrong. Uh, moving forward, just from a practical level, you know, and I'll focus mainly on the fire prevention. You know, in Oklahoma, in just the last year, unfortunately, we're not proud of being towards the bottom in the country for fire fatalities. 
and our state fire marshal, who was the United States Fire Administrator, uh, is working with our committee and, and we're getting very proactive and we're getting ready to put a program into play to address this issue. But we lost um, a complete family last year in a mobile home fire. And then we lost another couple and two firefighters that were trying to get that couple out in another mobile home fire. And then we had a number of other cases where people died in fires. And the reality was all of them, from what I understand, none of them had a properly operating smoke alarm. And I, I heard you brought that up. Sometimes it's, first of all, we, a lot of communities have programs to get you smoke alarms if you, look, if you can't afford them. But uh, my word of advice for everybody is if, if you could, when you go home tonight or today or whatever, simply walk around your home inside every single room, slow and easy and outside and look around. Is there anything that could potentially cause harm? my family members and i'm not talking just fire but since i'm big into the fire service that's where i'm starting off with you should have smoke alarms in every single room and living area you don't have to stick them in the kitchen you don't have to stick them in the bathroom because they'll go off because of smoke and all that but contact somebody if you don't have the funds contact your local fire department if they do not have a program contact red cross um and then if nothing else, you can even contact community groups that might be able to assist on getting you some. A basic smoke alarm nowadays, I think is about $20, $17 or something like that. And then walk around your home. A lot of these things that safe kids address, you know, is we have kids that little kids get into their parents or grandparents' medicines. They're sitting on the table because they're colored and they look like candy. That's not good, you know, put the candy up keep things away from um, any hot surfaces. If you like light and candles, be sure you blow them out. If you use a space heater, a lot of our house fires are from space heaters during the winter months. You know, those things generate a lot of heat. Make sure there's nothing within three feet from them. Unplug them before you go to bed. Um, Thanksgiving is the number one day of the year for kitchen fires. Kitchen fires is the number one cause of house fires in the United States. The number one cause of fatality fires are still smoking, believe it or not. They normally happen at night. People don't wake up because they don't have smoke alarms to wake them up. They take that smoke in. It's a smoke that kills them before the fire ever gets to them. Uh, these are a few things. Make sure your kids know how to get in and out of the house in case of a fire. Make sure they actually know how to open and close the windows how to work the doors. If you live way out in the boonies and you got a couple of fire extinguishers because the fire department, by the time they get to you, your house will be gone. Learn how to use uh, fire extinguishers and place them properly in your home. Some of the funny, the weirdest basic things we were taught as a kid to pick up after ourselves, pick up your toys and all that. Uh, the biggest uh, call we get for older people are falls. You know, pick up your stuff, take care of your grandparents or whatever. So they're not falling. And because when they fall, it's it's a very serious injury, potentially. So these are just a few things, you know, I could go on and on. Make sure your guns are put up if you own a gun and and things of that nature. Uh, but these are all injury prevention. This is all about through education, trying to reduce these risks in your community and NFPA has some great materials, safekids.org, abundance of amount of injury prevention material. And I'm not just throwing them out because I'm familiar with them, but well, I guess I am because I am familiar with them, you know, 
and they have great material. I know there's other organizations too, but those are good starting points. Um, it all comes down to the number one priority in the fire service has always been life safety, always. Nobody wants to attend their kid's funeral. That's absurd, you know. Then also community-wide to protect our families, protect our communities, and just enjoy life maybe just a little bit better. And uh, I'll leave it at that, bud. Well, Dad, I appreciate you um, taking the time to sit down and, and talk with me because there's a lot more to the fire department, the fire service, and just community you know, risk reduction generally than people realize. Uh, as great as it is to be perceived as uh, the guys who come whenever your, your stove catches on fire, that's, that's of course really important, but there's also so much more to it. And as you're mentioning, you're at the forefront of new initiatives to make this prevention uh, even more effective and to save even more lives, which as you said, of course, is is always your priority. So I really appreciate you taking the time to sit down and educate me along with everyone else listening here today. Hey, if you don't mind me saying, Colton, just real quick, um, you know, I applaud what you are doing and, you know, you're, you're offering a format here, whether it's just two or three people tuning in or you get a couple thousand, you know, whatever you're, you're offering a, a place where people can just, openly discuss as adults, knowing that the way we're made is imperfect and, and we're not gonna agree on everything, that's a given. But when people can come together with calm minds and talk things through and all that, that's when we're gonna have success. And whether that's really happening or not in our country, I like to think it is sometimes, sometimes maybe we're being shown that it's not, I don't really know. But what I do know is when you have platforms like that and you're talking about uh, any type of topic and you've had some excellent topics, this is where good things will come out of it. And your generation, you guys are going to, you guys are leading the way and you're going to be leading the way more moving forward. Um, so I just, you know, I just pray for all of you guys that you continue to be able to have these open discussions and that you have, good common sense um, times to speak and to understand. You know, we talked about that earlier. We all come from, nobody knows my heart and I don't know your heart and I don't know your history and I don't know the guy's history down the road. We all come from different places, but that could be a benefit instead of something that we look down upon. So if we could just listen and, and take the time to learn from each other and understand a, a little bit more of each other, so I applaud you and uh, anybody who's doing anything similar to what you're doing. We need this. <laughs> Lord, we need this more than ever. And uh, anyways, uh, thanks a lot for what you're doing. Absolutely. And of course, uh, you know better than almost anyone. Uh, I couldn't agree with you more. So let's just uh, hope for the best for the future and hope that this dialogue can, as you said, really bring us together where uh, in at this time, it seems like that's not always happening. Right. All right. Well, I appreciate you coming on, Dad. All right. Love you, bud. You take care. Love you, too. Thanks. All right. Bye-bye.